0: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Ginny Gerard Burnett, author of a new study of Guatemala under Efrain Rios Montt, titled Terror in the Land of the Holy Spirit, published by Oxford University Press. Of all the regions and case studies we've examined in this podcast, I'm probably least familiar with Guatemala and with Rios Montt. So I'm sitting in my office in my chair, and we've all had a book like this, and I found myself repeatedly putting the book down getting up and walking down the hallway to tell my colleagues some new insight or information or or just something that I found fascinating out of the book. It's a short book, but it's packed with information and understanding, and it's gonna stick with me at least for a long time. So I'm thrilled to get a chance today to unpack uh, the insights with the author. So Ginny, let me say thank you for being with us and welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you so much, Kelly, and thank you for your kind words about the book. That actually was one of my objectives, to uh, sort of open up the Guatemalan case to people who didn't know anything about Guatemala or its contemporary history. So I'm glad, at least on that level, it's successful.
0: So so let's start out by just asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in Guatemala.
1: Well, I came became interested in Guatemala really by accident. Um I'm afraid to give away my own age here, but I was in uh, <laughs> graduate school uh, in the early 1980s and had originally, I knew I was interested in Latin America. I thought I was interested in Mexico, but I had an opportunity to uh, to go to Guatemala instead of Mexico for a summer program in 1980. And unbeknownst to me, there was a civil war raging in Guatemala in 1980. And we arrived down there, and it was in some ways the beginning of the period I discuss here um, is la violencia, the violence. Uh, Guatemala's civil war lasted 36 years, but there were ebbs and flows of it. And this is probably the period of time really from about 19. um, I would say nineteen seventy eight to nineteen eighty three that 's the real nadir of it it's when probably forty percent of the people were killed and when I say the people, I mean civilians who were killed by the mm-hmm. government uh, so it was a complete surprise to me to get there and to find the situation and to realize that even to go into Guatemala City, one ran the risk of not coming back that there at that time there were people who would ride up to other people on motorcycles and shoot them on the street. There were mm. um, ads in the paper every day about people who had lost loved ones, and they would post pictures of them and descriptions of a person who had been disappeared. There was nothing actually covered in the paper about the violence that was going on in the countryside, but uh, the interlinear reading um, was profound. Mm. Um, so I was there for a summer in 1980, it couldn't go back for a couple of years because by that time the war was really in, in full flower, the Army's counterinsurgency campaign against um, the guerrillas and by extension a uh, large part of the civilian population. And then I went back in 1983, which is um, during the Rios Montt era, uh, and could see some real dramatic changes. By the time I got there in the summer of 1983, uh, the Guatemalan Army had pretty much defeated the guerrillas. Um, And the evidence of what had happened in the interim was everywhere. There were uh, fields burned out, lots of government propaganda everywhere, uh, emaciated people, towns, villages gone. Um, And so I was, by that time, researching my doctoral dissertation, which was about Protestantism in Guatemala, inspired in part by the fact that Rios Montt was a... Was a Pentecostal, although the direction that that dissertation and my first book went took a, a rather different direction than I originally thought uh, on that question. Um, but it, it it continued to nag at me all these years that um, I, I felt like there was something I needed to do for my own soul's health <laughs> to write about this period of time. On the other hand. Um, there's been a lot of discussion, I think, correctly in Guatemala about who owns the history. And since the end of the war in 1996, Guatemala continues to be a very violent place, but in a different sort of way than it was during the war. Uh, There's been a lot of discussion about What does it mean to reconcile with history, to uncover what happened during that period of time, who did what to whom? And it seemed important to me that that this be a a question that was really sorted out by Guatemalans, to give them their own agency and their own, you know, to put them at the front of the story and not foreigners who come in on a white horse to sort of show them what happened. I I think there's really a little bit too much of that in in my field. But I was talking about this kind of I really sort of saw it as a moral dilemma as well as a professional one about what to do about this story that I wanted to tell that I felt like was important to be told but uh, that I didn't, seem, didn't seem to me that maybe I was the right person to do it. It was actually some Guatemalans who said, no, they said, you know, we can't tell this story yet. Hmm. And so we need other people to do it <clears throat> as long as you recognize our position in this. And so that's what finally... I suppose gave me permission to go ahead and 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 write this book with, with the understanding that other people will come back later and maybe mm-hmm. do a, a different job and maybe a better job than than I've done. But for now, I think this is what we have.
0: So so let's start out. Um, why don't you introduce us to Rios Montt? Where did he grow up? What kind of formative influences did he have? Um, how did he imagine his life was going to be like? Yeah.
1: <laughs> what a what a good question. He is from a prominent French Guatemalan family. That's where the Mont comes from. Um, oh, I say prominent. He's not from an elite family. He's from a, mm-hmm. a an aspirant family. Uh, he's from um, not Guatemala City. He's from the uh, Quetzaltenango area, which is the second largest city, but much, much, much smaller than Guatemala City, and he's not from the city itself. Um, it was a family that had a, a very strong work ethic, a a, work ethic, a, very, a, a real emphasis on achievement. Uh, they had, uh, I'm not sure, I think maybe four or five children. Some of them died as children, but he and his brother Mario Riosmont are certainly, by I suppose, <laughs> a lot of measures, the success of the family. Riosmont mm-hmm. became a, a general and uh, his brother Mario is currently Archbishop of Guatemala. Um, and so in Guatemala, certainly for people who aren't born into wealthy families, those are actually the two avenues to um, to success uh, for people who who are sort of working up a meritocracy, the military and the church. And so both of the brothers <laughs> made it to the top of, of their fields in that way. Beyond that, though, he... Um, Attended the Polytechnic Institute. He uh, attended the predecessor of the School of the Americas. He, for most of his career, had a fairly conventional Guatemalan military career. I mean, it it was not extraordinary in any particular way, although he continued to move up the military hierarchy. Um, But in 1976, he... um, Ran for president as a Christian Democrat, meaning as a as a mm-hmm. Roman Catholic, and was seen as a reformist um, character, a reformist a, a reformist politician who was opposed by fellow army officers under the concern that he wouldn't be uh, hard enough on communism. Which is really kind of an interesting thing to have happened, <laughs> and so he was—he won the election, but he was defrauded out of it, and so was sent into diplomatic exile uh, to Spain, mm-hmm. so that he would not, um, you know, contest the fact that he had been, you know, sort of the elections had been stolen from him. And while he, this sort of threw him into a period of self-reflection and, uh, I suppose, some self-doubt, because it also meant that his military career was was stymied as well. And while uh, sort of in this period of self-doubt, he became a born-again Christian um, hmm. and, and a Pentecostal Christian. It, it, 1976 is a year, a huge year in Guatemala, because uh, in February of that year, uh, February 6th, February, excuse me, February 4th, of 1976, there was a massive earthquake that struck the country, um, and the epicenter of it was very near Guatemala City, and you know earthquakes like many natural disasters, but somehow it seems like in Central America, uniquely earthquakes really throw the fault lines that a country's already in into high relief. Mm -hmm. And so you'd already had this um, civil war going on between um, uh, leftist guerrillas and uh, military counterinsurgency in the 60s. It had almost been, the left had almost been defeated in in about 1969. Um, But They were regrouping in the mid-1970s, and with the earthquake, it gave them an impetus that they had not had prior to that time. It also gave the military a reason to really begin to clamp down on the descent in a way they probably hadn't done in maybe five, six, seven years. You know, to sort of contextualize things by the late 1970s, of course, that's when the Sandinistas are very close to gaining power in Nicaragua, 1979, mm-hmm. July 1979. It's also a period of time when, um, the FMLN in El Salvador seems to be poised on the edge of, of victory as well. And so, um uh, the Guatemalan, um, guerrillas were, um, not necessarily affiliated with either of those two groups. But on the other hand, they had common goals with them and certainly were inspired by what had happened elsewhere um, in Central America. And by 1980, by the time I got there in 1980, they had gained a lot of ground. Um, and the military was in kind of a moral panic about it. Um, mm-hmm. In January of 1980, the, a group of uh, campesinos, you know, peasant um organizers, occupied the Spanish embassy, um, just demanding uh, their rights to land and, and sort of rights as citizens. And the Guatemalan government burned the Spanish embassy with everybody in it, including hmm. including Spanish diplomats and a couple of reporters who were there. Uh, it, was, it was a horrific event. Gene Franco, who's, who's sort of a... Um, she sort of a she she actually does literary criticism, but she sort of thinks in bigger terms than that. She she talks about the burning of the Spanish embassy as is one of the most profound acts of disrespect the Guatemalan military could have perpetrated mm-hmm. against the Guatemalan people. And in fact, the burning of the Spanish embassy in January 1980 sort of marks the beginning of the true resurgence of of the left when they begin to really gain serious support, the alienation of people who had maybe tried to remain neutral on the question, and a strong reaction on the the part of the government. And so that's why in some ways you could see 1980 as the true beginning of of La Violencia. Um, The next year there was a presidential election, which of course was supposed to bring a military uh, leader into power and did... Mm -hmm. um, or like someone, but then there was a in, in March of 1982. Um, there's a coup on the part of a group of, of dissident military uh, leaders with strong support from most of the military, uh, which is led by Rios Mont and two other two other generals. Uh, and that's the coup that brings him to power. The idea was that there had been too much corruption in the military, that the military was being in, very ineffective, that they had been using a lot of kind of random terror and violence to bring the country under control, which wasn't working very well, mm-hmm. and that you needed a more concerted, systematic plan uh, of how to sort of rein in all this, this massive opposition that was springing up all over the country. And, um Rios Montt, from a military point of view, is the one that does it. Um, you know, he has a—at a, uh, at the time, he he's the golpista. He's a member of this coup. Mm-hmm. I'm actually—I'm not at all convinced that uh, his fellow mil- military officers, certainly not the U.S. Embassy, um, had a full understanding of how his thinking had changed since earlier in his career, since he had been a Christian-Democratic um, um you know presidential candidate i i he'd had this religious conversion and he um you know he had never really in any formal way articulated what his idea of a new Guatemala would be, but that in fact that's what he, he tries to put into effect, this thing he calls a new Guatemala, which involves first, um, defeating the left decisively and secondly, sort of recreating, uh, uh a new Guatemala as a sort of utopian city, city on the hill which that part never really happens. <laughs> um,
0: so so let's, take this, those, mm-hmm. yeah, let's take those one at, one at a time. So how does his attempt to defeat the left differ from his predecessors?
1: Well, it's it's an interesting thing, and it's, and it's one of those things I think history's really good at, at being able to um, sort of use, use the historical lens to see how that happened. It was not mm-hmm. all that clear at the time. And in fact, the way people understood the way it worked at the time this, is to me, is really interesting because one of the things I, I try to look at in my book is how people understand terror and how they understand authoritarianism at the time that it's going on versus how they understand it later. Um Under Lucas Garcia, who's uh, Riz Mont's predecessor, Romeo Lucas Garcia, also a general, um, you see the military government reacting to dissent with kind of randomized terror. That is, you see a lot of disappearances, a lot of political kidnappings, a lot of corpses that show up on the streets of Guatemala City early in the morning, disfigured and maimed. Um, You see them taking uh, actions against people in the countryside, but not in a particularly predictable way. And so if one of the objectives of Terror is to keep people controlled through just not being able to predict what's going to happen. Just, you know, mind your own business and don't try anything. That's effective. But in fact, people, it didn't seem to be effective in this setting. And so people did continue to um, organize and to... You know, from just being maybe health promoters or teachers, all the way to carrying arms against the government, you know, mm. a- attempting to overthrow it. I mean, what you know, what I'm calling dissent is a very wide range of behaviors and attitudes toward the government. Um, but from Lucas's point of view, it was all something that threatened the government, and so it all had to be somehow dealt with. And yet, there wasn't a system for doing it in, in a particularly practical way under Riosmontriomont had a um a much clearer idea of what needed to be done from a military point of view and then I'm going to you know talk about this from his point of view um mm-hmm. because this is one of the things I tried to sort of understand one of the paradoxes of the Rios Montt era that's being forgotten now, but at the time, he had a lot of support, and in fact, he remained a very popular political figure in Guatemala for 20 years after his hmm. his um, term, and he was only in power 18 months, uh, and was a perennial presidential candidate, forbidden um, to actually run for president by the Constitution. And yet, people time and time again would bring him up for this. And in fact, even today, he has certain sectors of support, but perhaps from a more predictable kind of, you know, business, military, security sector than in this earlier post-Rios Montt era, where even people in the conflict zones, even people in the massacre zone, supported him. And so, Hmm. one of my questions was why. You know, yeah. how can that be? Well, I think that goes back to exactly this question, what was his plan? So his plan was, number one, to um, to rein in random terror from Guatemala City. The night of the coup, he said, uh, <clears throat> I don't want to see any more corpses in the street. And they stopped. Uh, when I was in Guatemala in 1980, and certainly 1980, 81, 80, early 82, mm-hmm. the uh Excuse me. The the uh, bomberos, or the the firemen, would go through the streets of Guatemala City at at dawn every morning and pick up bodies that had been thrown out in the night. And Rios Montt said, "I don't want to see any more of that." And with those words, it stopped. Meaning Mm -hmm. that the people who were doing it were listening to him. Um, He also, and this certainly had a lot to do with his his ideas of being a a born-again Christian, I think, Mm -hmm. he was an ardent advocate of... um, Anti-corruption campaigns, and he meant it. At this point, he uh, mm-hmm. made every government official take a vow. Uh, there was a sort of a three-fingered salute that you saw everywhere, and everybody actually held it up the thumb and the first two fingers. No robo, no miento, no abusa, which is I don't rob, I don't lie, I don't steal. Mm-hmm. And if he um, caught anybody doing any of those three things, they would lose their jobs or be or be very seriously sanctioned for it. That included his fellow military officers. It included all government officials. And in a place like Guatemala, uh, historically, that's a reason you would be a government official, (laughs) (laughs) so that you could lie and steal and rob, right? (laughs) Um, So, you know, immediately... It certainly, the people around him began to think this is not what we had in mind, but it made him very popular in urban areas where people, you know, were subject to petty graft and corruption all the time. But they liked that about him. One of the things that he did that people still remember very, uh, uh, ardently, very strongly, is that he would go on TV every Sunday night, he would wear civilian clothes, he'd have a candelabra behind him, or some, or a flag, or something mm-hmm. like that, and he would talk about edifying moral topics, and sometimes they were expressly political. He would talk about how the guerrillas were disrespectful, and if they'd had proper respect for authority, if they had had good fathers, uh, they would have never joined these disrespectful groups that were trying to overthrow the government, but the government hadn't been respectful to the people, and so the children should be submissive to their fathers, but their fathers should be respectful to their families, and women should submit themselves to their husbands, but on the other hand, the husband should not abuse the wife in any way, and just like you have a family in this in this sort of biblical model society should correspond to that, too. So you have this, ideally, in his mind, you have this very paternalistic but benevolent government that is almost like a simulacrum of God uh, in his relationship with his people, right? And in Rizmon's idea was if you could get everybody to behave this way, we wouldn't have these kinds of problems, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not just uh not just violence, but the even in a couple of his Sunday sermons, as people called them, they weren't sermons; they were actually called. Sunday discourses. Um, <laughs> he actually says, you know, you also wouldn't have the problems of growth and inequalities and um, you know mm-hmm. greed that have created some of these difficulties. Anyway, he never goes so far as to say the gorillas are justified in trying yeah. to fight for a new society, but he does sort of intimate that every, there's enough blame to go around. And Of course, people watch these every Sunday. It was actually really interesting to me when uh, I had, my book was published in Spanish this summer, and I had kept, uh, on a separate file, I had kept all the Riosmont discursos mm-hmm. in Spanish with the idea that it would be translated, but the, in the book, they're out in, in, in English, of course, but the translator had gone through and had already translated him. He had to go back and substitute him. But he said what kind of scared him, he'd been a little boy when Rios Montt was in power. But, of course, his family always watched it. And he said it must must have been like an earwig in his head because <laughs> he was really surprised at how he'd gotten the cadence and the words. Mm-hmm. And he said mm-hmm. he said it's really a little bit scary. Um, but anyway, I, I, I want to return to what his program was. Uh, was, because I haven't even discussed the most important part, the most important part was at the time the Rizmont took power and there's a debate in this in Guatemala to this day um, for some specific reasons we might have time to, to talk about uh, it, but the the debate is over how how likely was it that the, that the guerrillas uh, w- would successfully be able to take over the country at the time there's this sort of a little bit of a forked tongue on, on the part of the government because the um, government's rhetoric about the guerrillas was that they were very effective, poorly armed, poorly organized, um, sort of a keystone cop group of guerrillas, so not really a threat to the government. But on the other hand, hmm. you need a total war against them. Yeah, And so, um, you know, one could say that doesn't really add up. It's either one way or the other. I I think certainly um, in the post-war period we get a very strong sense that um, the guerrillas had, at least at certain moments, many more supporters than, um, well, in Guatemala City he had understood that to be at the time. Um, but on the other hand, you have to be careful that that doesn't lead to, in my mind, that it doesn't lead to a justification of what the government did. Sure. Sure. Um, And so it's – but certainly, by the way they defined who the gorillas were, uh, they took the sort of the classic Regis de Bray sort of French approach that the gorillas swim like a fish in the ocean. You have to drain the entire ocean. And they certainly did that. Now, one of the things that distinguishes the – sort of modern uh, left from the 1960s left is in the 1960s, the left was pretty much organized in the city, and they were labor unionists and students and, um, you know, (laughs) um, well-read, you know, well-informed Cuban-trained, sometimes uh, Marxist leaders. By the 1970s, they changed their strategy to go into the countryside, particularly in uh, predominantly Maya highlands, Maya indigenous highlands, because of the, I think, their correct understanding that the most uh, egregious poverty and the most unequal distribution of, of resources were among the Maya population who have suffered from prejudice and um uh, you know, being left out of, either left out or uh, subjugated by national develop plan, development plans since, since uh, as long as there's been a Guatemala, a nation of Guatemala. You know, one of the things about it is that the uh, the left, uh, the, there there was an umbrella organization called the URNG, but um, the largest of the guerrilla organizations was the guerrilla army that poured the EGP. One of the things that they really had to grapple with was how much do you want to make this a um, uh, sort of an ethnic-based struggle? Most of them were Mm -hmm. Ladinos, meaning non non Maya. Most of them were urban um, people who'd grown up in the cities. A lot of them were, you know, had sort of been formed in the university. Um, But they were also conventional Marxists who think about you know, the contradictions of society in terms of class, not in terms of race and ethnicity. And so it was a real challenge for them to sort of figure out how do we how do we do this? Uh and how do we do this by incorporating Maya into the revolution but without putting them in particular harm's way because one of the pernicious effects of racism, of course, is that when people who you know, when, when it's people of color who involve, very often, uh, if they've already been prejudiced against, there's a, an automatic suspicion against them, um, and um, retribution is more likely to, mm-hmm. to fall on them. And in fact, that's exactly what happened in this case. Um, the Maya were not. Um, I'm speaking as if they're all one person. I don't mean to do that. <laughs> and there are all lots of factions and communities and leaders. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful that way. But, uh, you know, and it, it, they have their own understanding of history. And, you know, they were not particularly open to what the guerrillas had to offer initially because they understood that, it might put them in harm's way. Um, And also might not particularly have anything to offer to them that other non-Maya options had 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 to offer. But eventually, particularly through um, certain organizations within the Catholic Church, which the Maya were very much involved with, they did see that 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 provided them some options. And so by the time Rios Montt was in power, um, they... He decided, he and his his advisors decided that the thing to do would be to offer what he called fusiles and frijoles, which is, uh, fusiles is rifles and frijoles are guns, uh, Mm -hmm. beams and bullets is is the way a lot of people call it in in English, which was a, pretty much a carrot and stick. That is, we offer you amnesty, we offer you to give up your affiliation as we understand it. And an affiliation could, with the guerrillas, could range from, Um, You know, carrying arms and marching through the through the mountains and the jungle and taking part in um, confrontations with the Guatemalan army, all the way to you know bringing them beans and tortillas. You know, so it didn't take Mm -hmm. much to to be accused of 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 affiliating with them. Um, So. Anyway, the Fusilis du starts in what we would call their seasons are different there, but um, what we would call summer of 1982, and it ends up being a scorched earth campaign in the highlands. That is, they went through, and um, my understanding of this is sort of an I don't know if it's an apocryphal story, but I I tend to believe it um, that they actually went through with a map and they had pins This being 1982, <laughs> and uh, red ones for ones that were for villages that were affiliated with. The guerrillas, green for ones that were not, and yellow for ones that maybe, maybe not, with the instructions to go in there and clean up all the red and yellow villages. Well, um, the military did go into these villages, and in particular in July of, of 82, you see um, a large number of um, confrontations between the Guatemalan government and Mayan villages, and in any number of cases massacres in the villages by the military. Um, and so it's a it's a horrific time. This is when uh, certainly the um, United Nations um, United Nations uh, Truth Commission report that came out in 1999 uh, notes that the this is when the Guatemalan Uh, government identified the Maya people as internal enemies of the state, Um, which to me, there's not a single moment when that happens. But in fact, in in my mind, and my understanding of it, it, it's a combination of racism and political exigencies that make mm-hmm. that happen. One of the, I, I haven't even mentioned this, some of your listeners might know that Rios Montt actually um, was tried for human rights abuses and genocide right. last right. spring and convicted of them, convicted of mm-hmm. both of them. Um, and the point of genocide was a crucial one. he, As I said, there were two charges against him. One was crimes against humanity. The other one was genocide. And this remains a... Pivotal question it was actually it was one Maya group, the Ishiil Maya group, that they brought the genocide charges. There are twenty two different Maya language groups uh the Ishilas being just one of them, but that was the case that that they brought. I should also mention that despite the fact he was convicted and um since to eighty years in prison and he's in his mid 80s now so that's mm-hmm. the rest of his life Great. really um he was he's also been let off at this point mm-hmm. um it, but the if you go to Guatemala today you'll see that different groups have um put, have have campaigns and buses with their sides painted with this, and billboards that will say, si, well, you know, Cidio, which means, was there genocide? Was there or was there not genocide? Um, hmm. And so, you know, the question of whether or not this was actually genocide or just kind of looked like genocide has <laughs> loomed very, very large, and Guatemala and Guatemalan continues to today. And I will say, in my book, I actually... Yeah, the book came out before the trial. Not even sure I would have taken it on this question on <laughs> had it not but in my in my book um you know genocide you, you write it you know you this program is about genocide, and your listeners are mm-hmm. going to know a lot about it and it has a very specific definition um and so one can raise a question whether or not by that very specific definition uh what happened in Guatemala was or wasn't wasn't genocide but in the book I make the case that there's you know you have the sort of matrices of genocide and then you have a, the matrices of what happened um And there's so much overlap. I think of it as kind of a Venn diagram that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when you come out on the other side of it, unless you have a legal case, which you actually do end up with in Guatemala, it's sort of, I I hate to say it this way, but it sort of doesn't matter. Uh, You have Mm -hmm. um, thousands and thousands of people who are killed for who they are. Um, And so whether or not it fits that very precise you know nuremberg era definition or not um unless you're in a, in a specific legal situation um i think it 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 doesn't matter too much now there are i have colleagues who disagree with that yeah uh and you don't have to be uh you know as i'd say there a Rios montista to take a different view of it <laughs> um but it, yeah there we are.
0: Well, I, I know your schedule is tight, and so here I'll just refer the, the our listeners. I think one of the most interesting part of parts of this book is is the way in which you talk about symbols and about lenses and and about how you you um, you question the kind of binary interpretations of. Whether this is a Cold War conflict between capitalists and communists, or whether this is a Protestant slash Pentecostal versus Catholic conflict, to what degree it's a political civil war as opposed to a genocide, uh, and 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 suggest to the readers that um, or to the listeners that it's well worth reading to 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 get Jenny's uh, thoughts about that. But as I say, I know your time is tight. Really quickly, um, how does he, you said he was only in power for a year and a half? Yeah, what happened? Oh, he was
1: overthrown in a coup. (laughs) He was overthrown in a coup in August of 1983. Uh, And the reason that he was overthrown in a coup, I think, is is twofold. Number one, he had accomplished what the military wanted him to accomplish. That is, by um, August 1983, the guerrillas were not defeated, but they had really been reduced and much of the support for them. Had been reduced largely because people were terrified um the other thing is his anti corruption campaign, which absolutely infuriated his fellow military officers and other people in the government and people in and the businessmen's organizations because he took that seriously um in in fact uh, my my husband's a radio reporter in fact, and um mm. um it, when he he covered this coup. And, oh wow! Yeah, well, it was actually his first day out of Spanish school, which is oh, my. sort of a terrifying <laughs> specter, isn't it? But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, the story was at the time that as, as Real Smart was being led out of the National Palaces, palace, um, you know, this slogan: I don't ro- rob, I don't mm-hmm. lie, I don't mm-hmm. steal. Uh, one of the coup leaders said to him, "The government that doesn't steal doesn't govern." <laughs> <laughs> and he, he was, uh, you know, very idiosyncratic. Some would not even use his kind of word as that. And he was a loose cannon. And so I think the military and the and the civilians behind the military wanted someone that they felt like was more predictable than, than Rios Montt was. Mm-hmm. It certainly wasn't because people opposed what had happened with Fusiles and Frijoles. To the contrary, I think they felt like that had been successful. And in fact, uh, in Argentina, I've heard that the military referred to Rios Montt's program as the Guatemalan solution. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, huh. So, you know, that's why he was overthrown. But he felt like it was sort of unfinished business. Uh, and in fact, his daughter, uh, Zuri Rios Montt, is a prominent um, a legislator in Guatemala today. And she is an ardent defender of her, of her father. Um, some feel that perhaps one of the reasons why Rios Month's case has not been dismissed, but it's—I think what what his lawyers have been able to do is to set up a situation since he is in his his 80s that they'll basically run out the clock on on his trial yeah. and he'll never serve any more time. He served 10 days in jail and that was it. That it yeah. isn't actually actually his supporters so strongly as her supporters. Hmm. Um, so it's it's possible. She certainly, I, I had the opportunity to attend one day of his trial, and she was certainly there in force, <laughs> giving interviews and taking pictures of the people who were there. And certainly we haven't heard the, the last of the
0: Rosemont family. Well, it's an amazing story, and you tell it really well, and as I say, I I encourage the readers or the listeners to go get a copy of the book. It's far richer than we've had a chance to deal with here. So let me just conclude by asking what's kind of our usual final question, and that's what are you working on next?
1: Oh, well, thank you for asking. I'm actually really excited about this. It's in an early phase, but I'm working on a project about uh, revolutionary priests in Central America in in the 80s, mainly American priests. Hmm. Uh, and trying to develop an understanding of how they got to the point where they became revolutionaries. Uh, Because most of them went down to Central America with an idea that they were going to work in development projects, that they were going to sort of work in tandem with USAID, that that would be the way they would put the ideas of the Second Vatican Council and the Medellin Conference into effect. And some of them do that. And others of them get there and see a reality that's very different than they expected and um, over time adopt a, a- a genuinely revolutionary position, uh, which puts them at odds with the U.S. government, and so there are a mm-hmm. lot of really interesting sources about that. So you have, you know, U.S. embassies in places like Guatemala and El Salvador and Nicaragua, who are supposed to defend the interests of U.S. citizens, but they find themselves that, you know, in this position where U.S. citizens, these clergy. Are opposed to the interests of the U.S. government. And so, not very far along on this project, but very excited. And I'd really like to get on it soon because a lot of them are still alive. But even since I've conceptualized the project, three people that I wanted to interview have died. So, Mm -hmm. time to get on it.
0: (laughs) Well, it sounds like a great project, and I hope when it's done, you'll join us again. Well, thank Um, you
1: so much, Kelly.
0: But for now, thanks so much for being with us, and um, I hope you have a great day.
1: Well, thank you. You too, and thank you for your interest.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Virginia Gerard Burnett, author of the new book, Terror in the Land of the Holy Spirit, Guatemala under General Efrain Rios Mont, 1982-1983, published by Oxford University Press. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time for the first of a two-part series on Raphael Lemkin later in the month, I'll post an interview with Donna Lee Fries about Lemkin's autobiography, Totally Unofficial, which she edited, as well as a special issue of the Journal of Genocide Research devoted to Lemkin. Next, however, is an interview with Steve Jacobs, who has edited Lemkin's unpublished history of genocide. I hope you'll join us then for a fascinating discussion of the book, which Jacobs has titled Lemkin on Genocide. Until then, have a great month.